Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There was a comedy club upstairs from my parents' bookstore called The Rose and Thistle. And they would have this show called Even the Score, which was such a weird show. Because you would buy tomatoes that were rotten in the entrance, and then you would throw them at the performers, anytime. And if you were really a good performer, you wouldn't get tomatoes or anything. They'd be like rotten fruit, whatever. And I never got anything thrown at me. <laughs> but I think because I was so young, I was like 14, and people didn't understand like what I was there to do even. And so I was able to do a lot of stuff there. I did a lot in San Francisco. Hi, I'm Kelly Edwards, and this is Let's Go Together, a podcast from Travel and Leisure about the ways travel connects us and what happens when you don't let anything stop you from seeing the world. On this episode, I'll be taking a break as Travel and Leisure's experiences editor, Tanner Saunders, takes over as guest host. He sits down with comedian and actor, Margaret Cho, to talk about her unique upbringing in San Francisco's LGBTQ community, her comedy career, and her travel stories. And now, over to you, Tanner. Well, thank you again, Margaret. We are so excited to have you. And I guess just to give you a little background about the podcast, too. So what we do is we talk to different travelers about how they see the world. I guess first, I'm just curious, how have you been during this last year? It's been absolutely wild. Oh, gosh. It's crazy. Although I have traveled, not as much as I usually do, but just for work, I've been shooting movies in New York and Syracuse and in Hawaii, Wow, which was incredible. So there's been a chance to travel, albeit very differently, But it's definitely like something I truly miss because usually I'm gone about at least 25 to 30 weeks in a year. So it's very strange to be sort of set down for all this time. Yeah. Before you could travel, when the world was really shut down, those couple of months that it was, what was that like for you? Were you, you know, just taking the time to take stock of what you had or did you do anything? Yeah. Well, taking time to really live in my house, which I had never done in the 20 years I've been here. So I actually finally unpacked because usually I don't unpack. Okay. You know, travelers, I think they know this. It's like you have your travel bag and then you never really unpack it. So it's got your travel toiletries and all the things that the dailiness will have sort of like my vitamins and travel like medications in one thing and then I just leave it in the bag. And then there's like the basics, like there's travel pajamas or like a travel arm splint that I have. (laughs) I have like (laughs) just travel things and then I just don't unpack them. And then sometimes I'll just switch out the clothes depending on where I'm going. But there's like the travel underwear and travel socks that stay. So finally, I actually unpacked all of my travel bags, which is kind of a crazy thing because I have like a winter bag and like a summer bag and I haven't unpacked them in years. That's good, though, because you always know, right, what's in it. Because I assume, forgive me if I'm wrong, but 
when you're traveling and filming and things, you just kind of need what you need for you. And then they take care of everything else for you. Yeah, for the most part. And then there's like comedy where you have to do everything too. But I have had like experiences where I would live in like a tour bus. I've only done that a few times, but I really love that because it's basically like rolling around in a giant suitcase. So you leave your whole life in there, including food and stuff. So it's like you're traveling hotel room, restaurant, room service, TV, whatever. But this time, so like not traveling, I just stayed home. I got a mortar and pestle. I started cooking a lot of Thai food, okay. which was really fun. So I sort of went to Thailand in my mind and um, just kind of cooked and ate at home. I mean, I was going to do like these really exciting trips where I was going to go to Australia and Japan and Korea and Hong Kong and didn't get to go. So hopefully 2022. 2022, it's the year we're all planning, you know, travel is starting to open up, but mm -hmm. it's so interesting because people, I mean, I just got on a plane for the first time. I'm in Texas right now visiting my parents and it's kind of wild because traveling is different. I had my mask on and the person next to me had their mask on, obviously. And we were both trying to like secretly like take a sip of water without like yeah. exposing ourselves. It is. It's coming, coming back. Like when I traveled on planes before, I had a full kind of plastic shield with a hood. It was like a hoodie that had a plastic face on it. So I'd have that and then two masks. I've also had, there's like a face shield that has like um, sunglasses in it. So it was like a round thing, <laughs> but they always got fogged up. So then I had a microclimate, but it was so embarrassing to wear because that's, it's like a full hood, but it's like a astronaut. It's just so stupid looking and it's like really, <laughs> it's just so dorky that I couldn't bear to wear it. But it actually does really good when I'm dusting off the high ledges in my <laughs> like ledges that are 15 feet off the ground and I can't get to them. But when I dust them, they get really dirty. So I wear them for house cleaning. So just just a giant hood thing. It's so embarrassing. So I can't do it. A double use there. But I mean, I guess that makes sense, right? Because with COVID and you traveling for work, the potential for exposure, if you got exposed or had to like do an extra quarantine on whatever you were probably having to do, that could really set your schedule or the production back, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a real problem. But I think with Hawaii was different because Hawaii is so stringent about quarantine that they quarantine everybody before they go in. But I got exemptions as film and TV is essential workers when you go on location. And so we got exemptions, but we had to kind of test several times before we even left LA. And then when we get there, we had a special QR code to get into the city. But I felt really safe in Hawaii because everybody had been locked down there and also quarantined to get in. And people were still wearing masks. So there was like a casual nature about it. Like you could feel like I actually went out to eat for the first time in a year when I was there. So there was a sense of, well, if we really follow these rules, we could get through this kind of like the way that New Zealand did or Australia even. Shifting gears a little, I know you are so well known for like, your activism and being outspoken with all of the violence and the issues that are happening against Asian people in the United States. What your thoughts are on all of this and like where your mind has been? I've been actually going back into history 
And I'm doing a podcast about it, which is called Mortal Minority, which is looking back towards the cyclical patterns of violence against Asian Americans. And it's really intense because there's so much in history that we don't know. And uh, we're not taught in schools, just in the same of Black history, we don't know so many things. So there's been some kind of relief knowing that this is actually, it's relief and panic too, because it's like, it's a cyclical pattern and it's something historically we've endured. But because of the way that our culture is, we don't hear these stories. So it's helped me to go back and talk about these issues, but also to know that this has happened before and we've survived it. But now I think there's a sense of a real shift in understanding. Also, social media exists, which we didn't have before. And I feel like there's a way to shift society and change and grow faster. I would hope so anyway. Yeah, I think you're right. There's so much in U.S. history that we don't know. And I've listened to a couple episodes of your podcast. And I think that it is crazy that there are these stories and they're not just little stories. They're really complex and intricate stories of whole communities that have been affected. Like, for example, I listened to the episode about Los Angeles and the L.A. massacre. And that's oh yeah, the Chinatown massacre. Yeah, the Chinatown massacre. I had never heard of that. Yeah, it's so crazy. I didn't know about it until I got the app Crime Doors, which is such a weird app. It's like a true crime app. But what you do is you turn on your locations and it shows you all of the crimes that happened around you. This is so weird. So that actually happened really close to my house. Okay. It's one of the first things that comes up. And so I learned about it there. And then um, later, of course, did more research about it. But it's like you wouldn't know. I mean, I feel like also true crime is become a very mainstream interest. And so people are sort of looking to history and looking to instances of things happening and really discussing them. So in a sense, there's a more of a sense of history that we're not learning in school, but history that's more about stories that are handed down that are very specific to a community. And so I'm glad for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I know one thing that I wanted to get at is your roots and your upbringing, because I know you had definitely an interesting life in San Francisco, right? Yes. Your parents were immigrants mm -hmm. and you kind of had this life, it seems like, in San Francisco that so many people probably can't necessarily relate to. Do you want to tell me a little bit about what it was like coming up in San Francisco? Yeah, I grew up in San Francisco and my parents owned a gay bookstore that they bought in 1977. So a lot of the employees were getting very excited about Harvey Milk. They were getting excited about gay politics. We had book signings and events at the store. Armistead Mopin would sign books, which was really a big deal. He wrote Tales of the City mm -hmm. series, which is a very, very big San Francisco gay phenomenal success story. But the way that I looked into the world as a kid was through really gay eyes. I really got a gay education and, you know, it was really great. I mean, it was really important. But the tragedy of that was having to see how amazing and exciting and fun the community was and then to have it all go away with AIDS. Yeah. That was really devastating. It really devastated the entire community. And, um, you know, the loss is really immeasurable. And when I look back, I actually see a lot of similar patterns of people using 
AIDS as a justification for their homophobic violence in the same way that people are using coronavirus as a justification for their anti-Asian violence. And so these things happen when people are under duress and they're not really, it has nothing to do with the disease, really. It's just this discrimination that already exists there that they're looking for any reason to act out on because if AIDS is bloodborne, you're not going to want to like get somebody's blood all over you. <laughs> like it's like, exactly. it's so irrational. The same way of like, if coronavirus is spread by yelling, why are you going to yell at an Asian person in the street? Like it's a very similar thing, but people will use any excuse to get their homophobic rage out, their racist rage out, whatever it is. In San Francisco, when you were growing up, did you live in the Castro? We were in the Sunset District. The bookstore was in the Polk Street area. So it was Polk in California, which was actually the other gay. There was like three very distinctly gay neighbors, or actually four. There was South of Market, which is where the leather daddies were. There's Polk Street, which was kind of the upwardly mobile, the guppies, gay yuppies. The Castros were like the Castro clones, which they were all the guys. They all looked like Freddie Mercury. <laughs> and then the mission, which is all lesbians. Okay. So <laughs> this is the four big sort of gay strongholds in the city. And so Polk Street was one. But Polk Street actually now is kind of more of like a tech money, bro-y neighborhood, which is super weird to think about. And so all of that gay stuff wasn't there, but it was all drag bars. It would have like the Empress of San Francisco, which is like a very long standing drag pageant at one of the bars there. And so there was like a lot of drag there. There was a lot of that kind of nightlife, but it's, it's all gone. I know every city has been slowly losing a lot of the queer centers of their neighborhoods and of their iconic places. But it's wild because I actually read the other day, we did a story at Travel and Leisure that I think there's definitely less than like 20 lesbian bars left in the United States, which oh, yeah. is really sad. It's disheartening to see, but I know there's trying to be a resurgence of those places. But with this community that you kind of found yourself in, how how did you get involved? Were you working at the bookstore? Like, how are you getting to know these people? And how did that start to shape your personal identity? Well, I would be at the bookstore every day and doing my homework. It was kind of like where my parents were. So I would always be there. And then I started working there when I was a teenager and just hanging out with everybody. And it just really shaped my personality, you know, just to be around queer people all the time and to become close with all these different people. And then they would die and it would be like really terrifying and so sad and you didn't really know how to cope with it. And then with the dealing with the survivors too, a lot of the people, mm -hmm. all of us had a sense of survivor's guilt around it and a sense of real shared trauma that wasn't really expressed in any way. There was a couple of movies about it, very little though, compared to the huge enormity of what was actually going on. So still there's not really a sense of how big and how terrible it was even though we all know okay this is like a big deal a lot of it's pretty forgotten i'm just curious because were your parents how did they end up in this business were they very accepting from the get-go or did it just sort of fall into them you know what i mean well my father loves male attention and male beauty is south korea's greatest export 
So he he believes male attention is more valuable because women will fall for anything, but men really know what's beautiful. So (laughs) (laughs) my father's very handsome, very vain. So he's really very fond of male attention. (laughs) And so there was a couple of painters at the bookstore and they would do portraits of my dad who he has them up in his house still. You know, he's very fond of all of that kind of stuff. So he really loved the people like cooing over him. I think my parents experienced so much racism when they came to America in 1964. They really sought out other communities. So we always lived in black neighborhoods. We always did business in gay neighborhoods. There was always this push towards othered societies that my parents were trying to get a hold of and get into. So, I mean, that's kind of our journey in that immigration thing. Yeah, that's a definitely an interesting look at it, at finding community in other people who might have felt ostracized, especially in a place as seemingly diverse as San Francisco. But how has that, them being immigrants and sort of the way that they lived, influenced how you're perceiving what's happening against Asians and Asian Americans right now? How do they feel and how do you feel about them? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think it's what it is, is that there's like a long-standing archetype of Asians as being the eternal foreigner. And it started, I think, during the gold rush when Chinese people were coming over here, there was this idea that you had to go back at some point. And then we sort of infiltrated this culture of having to go back, that this not really being our country and that we're just here to work and then we're going to go back and um, send money back, send whatever back. And even to the point of when a lot of these Chinese men were killed, there was one in Rock Springs, Wyoming. There was there was a whole bunch of them in San Francisco, but the one in LA, these massacres, they would even send their bones back because you couldn't really like be buried here because you'd be lost. It wouldn't be your homeland. But something about that ethos really permeated the American idea of what Asian was. And so we still have that within our so whenever there's some kind of like crises in America, our Americanness is really questioned. It's like, aren't you the people that we're going to go back? So then it turns into they're taking our jobs. It's that weird immigrants are going to take over when this whole nation is immigrants anyway. So I don't know where people sort of get their idea of how American you are based on how long you've been here. When we come back... Margaret shares her experiences coming up as an actor and comedian, as well as some of her fondest travel memories. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome back to Let's Go Together from Travel and Leisure. We return to guest host Tanner Saunders and his conversation with Margaret Cho. So then I guess the question is, though, right, that all of these complexities and these very interesting things that make you, you, how did you start to take these and shift them into comedy, into acting? 
Well, I just really loved stand-up comedy. And to me, it was the real truth of what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be. And the acting thing was just part of it. Although I've been doing a lot of research about Dr. Hangas Noor, because I'm doing an episode about him later today, who was the doctor from Cambodia who survived the Khmer Rouge regime. And he was actually cast in the movie The Killing Fields. And he won the Oscar in 1985 for it. Similarly to Yunya Jung, one from Minari. Mm-hmm. In this sort of very, very like triumphant, her recognition came from sort of a lifetime of amazing work. And his was definitely that too, but not in acting, but in life. And so mm-hmm. his winning the award, I remember had a very big effect on me thinking, so I'd never seen Asians in movies. And then seeing him in what could be framed as sort of a typical white savior story, but in a lot of ways, it's actually an Asian savior because he's in the film and he's trying to rescue Sam Waterston and John Malkovich. <laughs> it's a very like, intense movie and it's a very lived experience. You see the experience that he went through in the film, even though it's not his particular story, he's privy to that pain. So it's a very intense thing. So I thought Maybe seeing him in that movie had something to do with the idea that I could be an actor. And comedy was something that I always knew that I wanted to do. It didn't really matter what effect I would have on the world of comedy, but I just knew the job of it was really my job. So did you start performing when you were still in San Francisco? Or how did that journey sort of lead you to where you are now? Well, there was a comedy club upstairs from my parents' bookstore called The Rose and Thistle. And they would have this show called Even the Score, which was such a weird show. Because you would buy tomatoes that were rotten in the entrance, and then you would throw them at the performers. Anytime. Anytime. And if you were really a good performer, you wouldn't get tomatoes or anything. They'd be like rotten fruit or whatever. And I never got anything thrown at me. (laughs) (laughs) But I think because I was so young, I was like 14, and people didn't understand like what I was there to do even. So... I was able to get by and being different, being othered in comedy is actually currency. So you're actually really well off if you're unusual. And so I was able to do a lot of stuff there. I did a lot in San Francisco. I worked pretty consistently throughout my teens into my early 20s. I came to Los Angeles in 1991 and uh, I was very much poised to just try to get ahead no matter what that would look like. And um, so I did a lot of comedy shows. There's a lot of comedy on television then. And uh, so I was able to get by. What does a 14-year-old in San Francisco joke about? Like, what was your comedy like then? I think about the gayness that I had grown up around. Like, there was drag fights. There were these drag races and drag fights. So I talk about that. And then um, just talking about being a kid in an adult's world that too, which is kind of big. And really, I did a lot of impressions of my mother, which I still do, which is great. (laughs) And then, you know, that kind of thing of just being in a place you're not supposed to be. So there's something very, like, fun about that. Has your mom always been supportive of your comedy, especially when she's the subject of the joke? Yeah, she loves it. I think because Asian women, after a certain age, become very invisible. So I think she really appreciated being seen and she didn't really understand what I was doing, but now she really loves it. It didn't take my parents long to appreciate my 
career because I was successful pretty early. So they could see that I could support myself and have like a nice place to live. You know, as a teenager, that's kind of amazing. So they were very excited about it. Yeah, that's every parent's dream, right? Mm -hmm. Is that your kids are able to take care of themselves. But when you just said that you feel like older Asian women don't necessarily always feel visible. I've seen some articles that you've said that maybe Asian comedians haven't always been visible or Asian actresses yeah. in particularly. Like, I wonder once you got to LA and you kind of found yourself in Hollywood, what was life like for you there as an Asian woman? Oh, well, I mean, I wasn't able to really work and do anything except comedy, which was fine because there was plenty of stuff to do. But at the same time, like I still wanted to be an actor and there was nothing that was happening. I mean, there was like a couple things here and there, of course, like Joy Luck Club was a big thing. And a lot of my friends are in that actually, which is great. But there was uh, not a lot else. There was that, there was Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. I can't do martial arts, so you can't, <laughs> you can't do those things if you're, and then you don't, even see, you don't even see their head anyway, so you don't know who's in there. But I think, yeah, there was just so little I remember that I went out on audition for Jurassic Park and B.D. Wong ended up getting the part, but we didn't even have a script. We would go in with the novel okay, and read something out of it. And it was so weird, but there were no parts really for Asian actors. It was so particular just to even show up in a show as an Asian person. Sometimes they would be like a crime show and they would have trouble in Chinatown. It'd be like the one episode that you're in. But other than that, you didn't really see it. You didn't see Asians on television in any capacity. And how did that make you feel? I mean, especially when you were there trying to work. Yeah, it's hard. It was hard to cope with that invisibility because you didn't have words for it because it's hard to describe invisibility because it's invisibility. It's what you don't know. Yeah. So I didn't know anything was possible because I hadn't even seen it before. So I didn't know I could be seen. So there was not even a sense of understanding what that would be. I even remember some of my first television appearances, they would have to mix my color of makeup. They didn't exist, <laughs> which to me is really strange, you know, in the 90s to have to create uh, makeup color from other makeup because you just don't have that color. To me, it's very baffling. Did you ever feel jaded maybe i should just give up no because i always had stand-up comedy so there was always that lure of i can still perform as a comedian like i knew what i was doing and i knew what i was able to do and i felt very seen and supported in that world and so that really kept me going and then when you were in la how did you find your community was it other stand-up other comedians that you built your community in and then how did your career go from there Oh, definitely. I mean, all of my friends were from comedy and it's still that the same. Comedians really stick together and we're really close. And even though like our careers pull us apart because we're always traveling, we're kept close and closer than ever now with social media and texting and stuff like that. So that's really supported our relationships that have been going on for 30 plus years now. So that's really good. But I think, yeah, through comedy is how I really kind of emerged as a person. I know I've asked you this, but when you're interjecting like your identity 
into your comedy, right? It's where you have this place where you can be a little rough and you can be critical, but in in a comedic way. Like, is there a place where you think there's a line? Yeah, there's a line. I mean, I think it's about compassion and it's knowing that you have a real authority as a performer. And so you have to be very respectful of that authority and know that there's a way to wield it that's appropriate. But only, I think only you would know that. Only anybody would know exactly what that line is, but there is one. And there's a lot of cancel culture too that exists. And I think that cancel culture is actually noble because what we're trying to do is we're trying to regulate language so that it's fair. And that's fine with me. So in order to talk about difficult subjects, you have to have a lot more discretion and artistry around what you're doing. And I think that's the approach. So it just makes us better, I think, as artists to try to figure out what that line is and to cross it when we need to. Does that line move as you're traveling around the country? Like, I know you've toured the world with your different shows. So how do you sort of navigate being in different places. How is a San Francisco show different than an Austin show, different than a Cleveland show? I don't think that it moves so drastically in America. It moves more when you're in Kuala Lumpur. It moves more when you're in Hong Kong or Singapore. So what was that like? It's very different because you have to be aware of, you can't say certain things about religion. You can't say certain things about, it's common sense too you can't be discriminatory towards things, but it's almost like these things, these rules that are unsaid in America, they're very explicitly laid out in other places just because they are. So it's not that the show changes necessarily. It's that you change your idea of where you are and um, some things don't travel as well. But nowadays they do because the world is much more on the same page in terms of pop culture, mm-hmm. the globalization of media. So we all sort of get our news sources at the same time, same place. Everybody knows what's happening. So the context and frame of reference really is very similar everywhere you go. Being a traveler, when you're physically touring and comedy aside, what is that like dropping in and Being in a city for a second, do you feel like you ever get to experience the places where you are traveling? Yes and no. I mean, you get to experience a little bit of the tourism because you're usually in the tourist areas because it's where you as an American comedian would be marketed towards. So you do see that part. But I do make an effort to, especially if I'm like at a festival or something, which is really great if you're at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, then you spend like the whole month in Scotland and you're with every comedian from every part of the world. And so I really make that my home or with whether it's Melbourne or whatever it is, wherever you're going for the festival. To me, that's the great thing. It's like hanging out with other comics from other places. Do you have a memory of a show or a city that you went and just said, this is the best. This is why I'm doing it. I think Sydney Opera House really incredible, just phenomenal because Australia is so Asian. It's so pan-Asian. It's so uh, gay. It's really special to me. So I really love that. And is there a place where you found yourself doing a show where you're just like, where am I and how did I get here? (laughs) Umea, Sweden, which is so weird. And I was there on my birthday 
And the audience, it was almost an hour and a half show. They did not laugh once. Ooh. But at the end, they stood up and they all sang a Swedish song. I believe it was their national anthem. And then they gave me a knife made of wood. It was made of wood. It was so weird. <laughs> Happy birthday. Yeah. Do you still have it? I don't have the knife. I don't know where it is. But I wish I had it because I don't have any proof of that happening. <laughs> well, you have the story. I have the story. When you're not touring and you're not traveling the world, filming movies and TV shows, where do you like to spend your time? Like, where do you like to have your personal time? I like to go to San Francisco. I like to go vintage t-shirt shopping. I'm an avid collector of vintage t-shirts. And so I like to go to Hate Street, which is very commercialized, but there's still like a lot of great vintage stuff there. And I like to go and dig and find the most vintage rock t-shirts that are just so falling apart. The Shroud of Turin of rock t-shirts, which would probably be a Beatles shirt. I don't have a Beatles shirt yet, but I want like a... I saw one once that was like $800, but I didn't really like it because it was like a baseball one. And I was like, mm, it's kind of... Mm. You want something that's like weirdly like not 80s. 80s is very bad news bears of rock shirts. That's not my favorite. And if you're going to spend that much money on like a vintage thing, it's got to be exactly what you want, right? It's got to be the right thing. So I'm always really, really looking. I do have a really magnificent Don't Squeeze the Charmin, Mr. Whipple 70s t-shirt that is like my favorite and I can't even wear it because it's just falling apart. So I like comedy t-shirts as well. I love that. And then do you have just like a dream vacation, a place that maybe you've been and you haven't had the chance to go back or do you have a dream vacation that's like, this is where I want to go? Well, I would like to go to Borneo and I would like to go in the long boat and get tattooed up in um, the wilds of Borneo. So that's my idea of a real vacation. Although that'll be a while, but I really want to do that. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Then just my last question is if there's anything that you want to plug or any special projects or anything that you're working on. I know you have a film coming out in June, right? Yes, it's called Good on Paper and it stars Eliza Schlesinger and myself. And it's really funny. It's a really great rom-con. It's a romantic comedy, but it's kind of shady. So I love it. So that's coming out in June. And then um, my podcast is out. Oh, and that's on Netflix. Good on Papers on Netflix. And then my podcast is called Margaret Cho, Mortal Minority, and it's out everywhere you get podcasts. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Margaret. I really appreciate it. This has been fun and enlightening. And now I feel like I need to go grab a notebook and try my hand at stand up. Yes. I don't know if it's for me, but I feel inspired now. Do it. It's so good. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. This has been Let's Go Together, a podcast by Travel and Leisure. I'm Kelly Edwards. Your guest host for this episode was Tanner Saunders, Experiences Editor at Travel and Leisure. And our guest was Margaret Cho. Follow Tanner on Instagram at Tizanner and follow Margaret at Margaret underscore Cho. Be sure to follow Let's Go Together on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the show, we'd really love it if you could leave us a rating and review. Join us again next week when we head to Oakland, California to talk to Damian McDuffie, 
a multi-platform storyteller and archivist who is using technology and art to connect the past with the future. Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Danielle Roth, Lena Beck Sillison, and Marvin Yu. This show was recorded in Los Angeles, edited in New York City, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks also to the team at Travel and Leisure, Deanne Krasersky, Nina Ruggiero, and Tanner Saunders. You can find out more at travelandleisure.com slash podcast. You can find Travel and Leisure on Instagram at Travel and Leisure, on Twitter at Travel Leisure, on TikTok at Travel and Leisure Mag, and you can find me at Kelly Set Go. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here next week for more from Let's Go Together.